Thank you all very much. Hey, good morning, everybody. Welcome to GBC. Uh, really glad to be here and glad to be preaching and glad to be preaching a new book. We're going to be starting the book of Joshua. It is the sixth book of the Old Testament, the first book after the Pentateuch, which is the five first books, which would make it the sixth book. It's kind of redundancy there, but get used to it. Um, I'm really excited about it. I, I've learned a lot about it in the last couple of weeks as I've been studying it, and um, I've got a lot more to learn. I promise you that. But uh, let's bow our heads, pray, and we will jump right into it. Let's, let's pray together. Father, we are grateful that every promise you've ever made, you've kept. Father, we're, we're grateful that everything you've ever said has been true. Uh, Father, we confess that that we don't always keep our promises and we don't always tell the truth. Uh, we fall short in so many different ways and, and we are driven back to your grace. We are grit, driven back to the gospel that, that gives us assurance that it is based in your righteousness, not our own righteousness, that you love us. Father, we are so grateful this morning for that truth that your love for us is based in you and what you have done for us, not in what we do. Father, I pray that that would not lead us into further sin or hypocrisy. I pray instead, God, that we would be empowered by what you have given us, that we might live unto your glory in wonderful gratitude and complete assurance and security. God, I pray that we would learn a lot of these truths more experientially from our study of the book of Joshua. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I heard a story 10 or 15 years ago about a lady who went shopping at the Galleria here in Houston. I, I guess it was before Amazon took over all shopping and um, people went to the Galleria. And, and so she went into the Galleria and this, by the way, is not some sort of like illustration, fable. It's, it's a real story. It's 10 or 15 years ago, so I don't remember the names, but I promise you, like I heard this as truth and, and like someone who was known. She goes in shopping. She goes to all these different shops. She comes out with a, a bunch of bags, you know, shopping bags, and she's walking back into the garage that is at the Galleria to, to get into her car. And, and when she gets near her car, she she sees something that just makes her heart stop. There is a big, thuggish-looking man sitting in the driver's seat of her car. And she's terrified. Her heart is racing. She's like, what do I do here? She drops her bags. She has a concealed carry license. She reaches into her purse and just with this like surging adrenaline. She takes her gun. She walks up along the side of the door. She swings the door open. She thrusts the gun at this guy's head and says, you get out of my blankety-blank car, you blankety-blank guy, or I am going to shoot you dead. The guy looks up at her, panics, jumps out of the car, and runs into the Galleria. You can imagine, I mean, she's just like any woman at Grace Bible Church except packing. And um, <laughs> her adrenaline is, not, not that some of you aren't, um, her, her adrenaline is surging, though. Know, and like, she's like, man, I got to call the police, but I don't want to sit here because this guy might come back. I want to get out of this dark 
parking garage to some sort of safety. So she, she puts her gun back in her purse. She, she grabs her keys. You know, she's shaking. She's fumbling. She sticks them into the ignition. And when she tries to turn the key, it won't turn. It's not her car. Sometimes our bad assumptions endanger us and in this case, a thuggish-looking guy. <laughs> Joshua chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you, just as I promised to Moses. From the wilderness and this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites to the great sea, toward the going down of the sun shall be your territory. No man will be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do in according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened. Do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Can we talk about some bad assumptions? There are two bad assumptions that I fear if we make them will endanger not only our interpretation of this text, but our interpretation of the whole of the book of Joshua. Two bad assumptions I want to avoid. The first bad assumption is this. This isn't the beginning of the story. I know that it's Joshua chapter 1 and we started in verse 1 and you're like, if this isn't the beginning, what would be the beginning? I promise this is not the beginning of the story. It is the beginning of the book. You were right in that regard, but the beginning of the book is not the beginning of the story and that's a bad assumption. That's a bad assumption. This book is actually only going to cover about 25 years of Israel's total existence. It's a real small sliver of Israel's history. But it doesn't even start in chapter 1. In fact, it starts about 600, maybe 700 years before Joshua is written. And it really starts in the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 12, in fact, is where the book starts. At that point in Genesis chapter 12, theologians call this the Abrahamic covenant. Really cool deal. God goes to Abraham, who, who really knows nothing about God, and God says, Abraham, if you will follow me, I'm going to give you three things. Okay, three things. 
I'm, first of all, I'm going to make you the father of a great nation. That's miraculous because Abraham is 75, his wife is 65, past childbearing years. He says, nonetheless, I'm going to give you a son, and that son is going to be prolific, and he's going to become the father of a great nation. So you're going to be the father of a great nation. I'm going to give you a great nation. I'm going to give the great nation land. And then from your seed, from, from your offspring, is going to come a Messiah, a deliverer, one who is going to be the savior, the deliverer for the Goim. The Goim is the nations. The Goim is this. It's all the different tribes and tongues. It's all the people who aren't Jewish who have been grafted in. I'm going to make you a nation. I'm going to give the nation land. And from this nation, this Jewish nation, is going to come a Messiah who will deliver the nations. That's the Abrahamic covenant. And that's where it starts. And it goes from there and it talks about Joseph. And then Joseph goes to Egypt and then they become pretty prolific in Egypt. The family does. And they spend about 400 of the six or 700 years in Egypt. And they, they grow into a, a large number of people. They end up getting enslaved. There's this wonderful story. You can see it in the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. It's all unfolding in this story. But it, but it started in Genesis 12. It started in Genesis 12. And you, you get to Joshua. And Joshua is just the continuation of the story. You've seen a lot happen. You've seen God be faithful. You've seen Israel largely be unfaithful. But ultimately, what you need to understand is that Joshua is about the fulfillment of God's promise, specifically the promise that he made in Genesis 12 to give the nation land. That's what you're going to see largely in the book of Joshua. It's historical. Now, when we talk about history, and we talk about the story of Israel, I get that we normally are thinking this is historical narrative. And, and you wouldn't be wrong. It, it, Joshua, I read it two weeks ago, all 24 chapters. That's no small thing. I don't read that much. It should concern you. Um, <laughs> 24 chapters, it is historical. Like, there's no debating that. Most moderns place this as a historical book. Here's the other assumption, though, that is dangerous, that it is only historical, that it's only historical narrative. I get that the moderns place it as a historical book, but I want you to know something that's incredibly important. The Jews who it was written to did not place this as a historical book, though they recognized that it was historical. The Jews place this as a prophetic book. It, they, they called it, in fact, a, a former prophet. It's, it's one of the earlier prophetic books. Now, if you've read J Joshua chapters 1 through 24, you're going to notice something really interesting. It doesn't ever foretell the future. Isn't that weird? Because normally when I think of prophecy, I think of someone foretelling the future. Like there's 300 prophecies about Jesus in the Old Testament that are fulfilled in the person of Jesus, and I call that prophecy. There's not one foretelling of the future in the book of Joshua, as far as I know. And yet the Jews called it a prophetic book. What, what gives? We think prophecy predicts the future. The Jews thought prophecy or the prophetic 
was applying historical lessons, historical teachings within Judaism to current circumstances. That's why the Jews generally hated the prophets. They would say, God has done this in the past and he's going to do the same thing if we don't straighten up and fly straight. Israel didn't really want to straighten up and fly straight, so they said, well, we could either do that or we could kill the prophet. Didn't work out very well for either of them, honestly. But it's, it's applying scriptural, historical, biblical principles to modern, current situations. That's what the Jews saw as prophecy. And this book, in that regard, is incredibly prophetic. The primary point of this book, just so you know, the book was written to remind Israel of God's faithfulness to the promises that he has made. That's why the book is penned. The book is written to remind Israel of God's faithfulness to the promises that he has made. Every once in a while around here, we'll sing a song called, Come Thou Fount. Come thou fount of every blessing. Y'all, y'all probably know it. I think as a congregation, we actually sing that song pretty well. There's, there's one lyric in Come Thou Fount that our congregation consistently sings louder than everybody else, all the other um, lyrics. Anybody know what that verse is? Like just right off the top of your head. It's probably a hard question. I, like I'm not great at remembering lyrics. Come thou fount of every blessing. There's one verse that says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Remember that one? Normally the the instrumentalists kind of back out and, and the congregation just thunders. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. We actually sing it twice. The author didn't write it twice. Our worship leaders just understand how it resonates and, and we, we linger there and everyone affirms it. There's, there's nobody who's like, you know what, I don't, I'm not that prone to wander. Nobody says that. Nobody, I object to that song. I don't want to sing that lyric twice. I don't wander. Nobody says that. I'm, 20 years I've been here, nobody once has come up and is like, ah, we shouldn't do that. Everyone affirms that. Here's the question. Why, since everyone affirms the fact that we are prone to wander, why are we prone to wander? Like, Why is that? There's a lot of answers. One is certainly our sin nature. But a really practical reason that we are prone to wander is because we are prone to forget. We are prone to forget. We are... What have you done for me lately, people? And the fact that God has historically been incredibly faithful, incredibly powerful to honor the promises that he has made to Israel and to to his covenant people historically, we forget about that. And so then we, we get on to just, what have you done for me lately? And if we don't see anything in the last 24 hours, we're like, well, I'm going to do it myself. I'm I'm going to satisfy my own desires because I'm not sure that God will because we have forgotten all that he has done historically and even historically in our own personal testimony. We're prone to forget, which makes us prone to wander. The book is written so that we won't forget. 
Which begs the next question, what does the author of Joshua want us to remember as we start this epic adventure? And, and y'all, this is going to be a fun book. Like this, this, it is an epic. Like I think that word gets overused. And, and epic is a long form narrative that has a hero or a heroic set of people who overcome great obstacles to accomplish something wonderful. This is the definition of an epic adventure. Now, look, what is the author writing to remind us of? Well, it's an epic. I just want you to know that every epic has a hero. We've already talked about that. Every epic has a hero, and the hero in Joshua, you'd probably think Joshua. You'd be wrong. He I get it's named after him. The hero is God. The hero is God. Now, the vice hero of this story, historically, and like in the recent history as we get to Joshua, has been Moses. But Moses isn't the vice hero anymore. And I'll tell you why. He's dead. It's hard to be a hero from the grave. And and that's, that's where Moses is. Now, Moses is dead. And so you're gonna start Joshua chapter 1, in a little bit of a, a disorientation, because death is disorienting. I, I feel like I've got some, some personal experience with that lately. Over the last month, in the aftermath of my mom passing, I've felt a little disoriented. And I, I'll tell you what that looks like. I, I drive around Houston, and I want to call my mom, and my mom is with Jesus, and that is something to celebrate, and I do celebrate that. But, but at the same time, I'm like, Dang, I can't call her. And, and I want to call her and ask her for advice, or, or maybe I, I want to tell her a funny story, or I want to hear a funny story because I'm a little bit down or something. I, I just want to talk to my mom. Or, or, or maybe I just need her encouragement. She was an incredible encourager, and I can't. And I love that she's with Jesus, but it's disorienting. And I, I just I apply that kind of feeling to the nation of Israel. Moses led Israel for 40 years. That's a long run. Like he was a really big deal. He was the guy who stood up against Pharaoh, basically the king of Egypt. That, that's courageous. He led Israel through the Red Sea. God used him to get a whole nation through a sea without the nation ever getting wet. God gives him the Ten Commandments. God uses him to to lead Israel around and around and around in a very small wilderness for 40 years. I mean, I'm like, come on, just follow a star. You can get out of this. God wouldn't let them, and God used Moses to lead them, and God provided through Moses in countless ways. Like, Moses has been the mediator, I mean, like, it's, it's amazing how great a prophet Moses has been. Deuteronomy 34, last chapter of Deuteronomy, the first chapter before Joshua. Jo- Deuteronomy 34, 10, basically says there's no one like Moses. Basically says he's the only prophet that spoke to God face to face. Other prophets are great. I'm not down on the other prophets. Deuteronomy is like, nobody else like him. They broke the mold. He's that good. So you get to verse 2. 
Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise, go over this Jordan, you and all the people, into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. This is actually interesting. Moses is dead. Deuteronomy 34, there was a time of mourning. It lasted 30 days. Now God is saying, the time to mourn is over. Go get my land. Go get the land that I have reserved for you. Ultimately, Moses is dead, but my promises are very much still alive. Let's live like they're real. That's what he's saying in verse 2 of this book. I mean, we start right out of the gate. Moses is dead. Moses wasn't the key to my fidelity to my promises. I am. I have this land for you, and here's what it's going to take. You're going to have to cross the Jordan River, which is a deep river. These are people of the desert. They're not great swimmers, with the exception of Mark Spitz, who is a Jewish guy. They're not great swimmers, okay? They got to cross the Jordan. There's a big like canyon in which the Jordan runs. And chapter 3, verse 15, the Jordan River is at flood stage when they're crossing. This is a daunting task. Joshua's got to lead them across because it's time to take the land. That's going to be hard. And when they get there, the land is going to be full of ites. ites. When, I, when I say ites, I'm talking about Joshua chapter 3, verse 10. And Joshua said, Here is how you shall know that the living God is among you and that he will, without fail, drive out from before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites. I've never even heard of them. The Amorites and the Jebusites. The land's full of ites. And, and these are big people. In fact, in Exodus chapter 3, verses 7 and 8, the, the spies who went in 40 years prior, 12 of them go in, two of them, Joshua, guys we're talking about here, and Caleb, they say, the land is flowing with milk and honey. God has given it to us, let's take them. But the other 10 guys, they say, the land is full of the Nephilim. These are giants, the Nephilim. And we feel like grasshoppers among them. We can't go in there. And they make up some lies about the land that it devours the people. And I'm like, how'd they get so big if the land devours the people? And God, because of their lack of faith in him, put them in timeout for 40 years. And they wander around in the desert. God provides for them, teaches them, but they're in timeout. And the land's still full of ites. It's going to be hard. Here's what I want you to understand. A life marked by obedience to Christ is, is not going to be easy. I, you need to understand, I don't know if it's like some sort of remnant prosperity gospel garbage that, that has people thinking, if I follow Jesus, my, my life will be easy like, where do you see that in Scripture? Like, were the disciples' lives marked by ease? No. It was hard. God was good in the midst of hardship. He, he says, I'll give you the land. You're like, that sounds easy. 
he says, you're going to have to take it. And the ites are there. And you're like, oops, that actually sounds hard, really hard. The hard stuff is where you will learn to live in dependence on God. Don't, when you get to the hard stuff of life, unless your own sin caused it, like if just the circumstances of life are hard, don't, like it's so weird. We're like, God must not love me. God, God isn't blessing me. And y'all, that's where God refines us. That, that's where God grows us up. That's where God teaches us to live in dependence on him. And so, I think we get this so wrong. What circumstances are driving you today toward greater dependence? Are those circumstances circumstances that that you are doubting God's kindness to you? Or could they be circumstances in which God is showing his kindness to you, even in the midst of the hardship? I guess it's hard to get your mind around because we're we're such a prosperity and ease-oriented culture. But it's exactly what the Bible says over and over again. It's going to be hard, and God is going to teach you great things in the midst of it. Augustine, Augustine, if you're a theological snob, (laughs) said, Lord, command what you will, but give what you command. Meaning, Lord, I will follow you wherever you want me, but empower me to live in obedience wherever I follow you. Like, I'm going to need you to help me get through whatever you have called me into. Is there anything in your life that would cause you today to pray that prayer? Lord, I'll follow you wherever you want, but I'm going to need your divine empowerment to obey you in the midst of the hard. That's something you should long for, not try to avoid. What does God command us to do in this life? If you're looking at the text, and it doesn't take a rocket scientist here, we're commanded to be strong and courageous. And the reason I say it doesn't take a a rocket scientist is because in verse 6, it says, be strong and courageous. And then in verse 7, it says, only be strong and very courageous. Like, I don't think you know what I'm talking about. We're going to raise the ante a little bit. It's very courageous now. And then in verse 9, it says, have I not commanded you? Like, I'm feeling redundant here. Be strong and courageous. Don't be frightened and do not be dismayed. And on it goes. Be strong and courageous. Be strong and courageous. Be strong and courageous. That is exactly what God is calling us to, and it's not even subtle. Where does it come from? Strength and courage come from believing that God has the power to keep his promises. That's verse 6. It says, Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause the people to inherit the land that I swore, I promised to their fathers to give them. Be strong and courageous because I am going to work through you to accomplish my good purposes. I am going to fulfill my good promises. Be strong and courageous. If you're wondering about more details on the land, you can find them in verses 3 and 4. 
every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given you. And it basically goes on, as I have promised Moses, it's going east to the Euphrates, it's going west to the Mediterranean, it's all these areas in between. It's a big land. It's a big land. Be strong and courageous, for I will fulfill my promises through you. Strength and courage come from believing that God has the power to keep his promises. This whole book is pinned. The whole book is written to remind Israel that God keeps his promises. Promises made six and seven hundred years prior, God is in the business of keeping them. Now look, I get insecure. That might feel really basic. You're like, I was looking for something a little bit more. God has the power to keep his promises. You, you say, that's, that's sort of basic. I'll raise your basic. I'm, I'm going to go even more basic here. And I'm going to do a little disclaimer. I got up this morning at 4 a.m., okay? It's not because I'm real holy. It's because my dog had diarrhea. <laughs> and so I get up to take her out, and I've got work left to do because I was watching some college football last night. And so I stay up. I'm up at 4. I'm up here at 4.30. And at about 5.15, I'm thinking about this. I, I think it's right, but I haven't, at, at 5.15, I haven't fully vetted it. Tell me, tell me what you think about this. If you believe that God is good, just that God is good, no, nothing more basic than that. If you believe that God is good, and that he can, he has the power to keep his promises. I don't think you'll sin. I get that we have a sin nature, but I'm saying that most of the time when we sin, maybe all the time, again, 515, just give me some grace here, but, but see where I'm going. Most of the time we sin, we've believed a lie that God isn't really on our side. Like he's, he's, we say he's good, but when it comes right down to it, we think he's withholding something, some, some sort of pleasure that, that the world says we deserve and we want it now. And, and God's withholding it now. And, and so is God really good? That's how, we, that's how we get into sin. Or maybe we think God is really good, but he was a little bit more vital back in the day of Joshua, and he's lost a step now. You know what, you know what I mean? Like he, He's good, but he's, he's old, and, and so he can't really look out for me. I'm going to have to look out for me. Or he's kind of lost touch a little bit. He doesn't really know what's best for me because I'm, I'm that sophisticated. I, I listen to Brene Brown. Seriously, I've got it all under control. Like that's what we do. And so we're like, the world knows better. God's a little bit outdated or he's, he's lost a step. And so I'm going to take care of myself. I'm telling you, most of the sins we commit, we commit by first believing a lie. God either is not as good as we have thought him to be or God is not as powerful as we thought him to be. And so we start trying to manage our own lives. There might be more to it. Hopefully I'll have it figured out by the five o'clock. Strength and courage comes from believing God has the power to keep his promises. Strength and courage comes 
from obeying the precepts of God. That's verses 7 and 8. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouths, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. We've already talked about the fact that we are prone to wander because we're prone to forget. Consistent time in God's Word helps us to remember the power of God to keep His promises, the presence of God, and the precepts of God. And so look, if you want to live a life in response to the power of God, the precepts of God, and the presence of God, and you're prone to forget, maybe you should get your nose in the book just a little bit, right? I mean, maybe. Like, just read your Bible. Like, I know that on any given day it might not feel like it's much, but the cumulative effect of time in God's holy word will shape how you view the rest of the world. Just try it as an experiment. Give it 60 days, spending consistent time daily in God's Word. See what happens. See if how you see the world starts to change just a little bit. Strength and courage comes from obeying and knowing the precepts of God. Strength and courage comes from knowing the presence of God. That's verse 9. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Don't be frightened. Don't be overwhelmed, dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. It's talking about the presence of God. Not not just the precepts. The presence of God. God is with us. He He is personal. He is not abstract. He is relational. So just to review real quick. Strength and courage come from believing that God has the power to keep his commandments. Strength and courage comes from obeying and knowing the precepts of God. And strength and courage comes from knowing the presence of God. That, as I was reading it, reminded me of the Great Commission. Did you catch that? Let's talk about the Great Commission, see see if we're on to something. We we first started out by saying strength and courage comes from knowing God has the power to keep his promises. How does the Great Commission start? It's not go and make disciples of all the nations. It's all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Isn't that strength and power? Isn't it believing God has the power to fulfill his promises? All authority, exousia, this word that means capability to do whatever God wants power to keep his promises all authority has been granted to me and then and then we go to strength and courage comes from knowing and obeying the precepts of god all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me therefore go and make disciples go and make disciples of the whole world all the nations that's a precept that's a precept that is unavoidable 
It's the last precept that God gave us before he ascended to the right hand of his Father. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. God has the power to keep his promises. All authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Strength and power come from knowing his precepts, obeying his precepts. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. And then the last one's all about the presence of God. Does anyone remember what the last clause of the Great Commission is? Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything that I have taught you. Remember the last part? And I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. Isn't that about the presence of God? Isn't it the exact same pattern that we see in Joshua chapter 1? reiterated, but now with the power of the Holy Spirit indwelling us in the Great Commission. Back to Joshua. I just think that's neat. You get it for free. It's not even August. (laughs) You get a lot of disciple making in the other months as well around here. This book, Joshua, is about the power of God to keep his promises. First and foremost, that's what you need to know. Promises made six and seven hundred years prior in Genesis chapter 12 Fulfilled in the land in Joshua, but ultimately fulfilled, ultimately fulfilled. Genesis chapter 12 promises to Abraham, ultimately fulfilled at the cross of Calvary. Like he promised to make a nation, to give the nation land and a seed who would come out of Israel to be a Messiah who would bless the Goim, the nations. The ultimate fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant is the cross of Calvary. Where Jesus, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be be grasped. He lowered himself, taking the nature of a servant and even a criminal, and dying a sinner's death on a cross so that we might be forgiven. That is how God keeps his promises. That's how God takes prone-to-wander sinners and calls them sons and daughters. We're going to take communion because we are prone to wander, because we're prone to forget, and God in his benevolence said, I'm not going to let you forget this. Take some time, pray. If you need to repent of sin, please do so. Do not take the bread or the cup in unrepentant sin. The Bible warns against that. I promise you don't want to do that. But if you have repented of your sin when the musicians begin to play, you'll know to come row by row, take the bread, take the cup, take it back to your seat. We're going to wait till everyone has been served, and then we are going to celebrate the provision of Christ for us as a body. Pray.